All right, good morning, IBC family. I'm Josh. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, it's my privilege to, in a sense, bring the word this morning. Um, When I was working on this sermon, uh, I realized that it was April when I preached last, which was weird because at one time it felt like a long time ago, and at the same time it felt like literally it was last Sunday. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, but I'm honored to be here. And uh, as we talk uh, this morning about what or really who is the object of our worship, um, I'm going to start first with repeating something that I think has been said from the pulpit a few times. Uh, Just on behalf of the elders, because I know this is the heart of every elder here at IBC, that the messages we bring from Scripture, uh, we first preach to ourselves. I heard a great quote from Calvin a a couple months ago that really has stuck with me. If a preacher is not first preaching to himself, better that he falls on the steps of the pulpit and breaks his neck than preaches that sermon. So I'd say, church family, pray that I don't fall and break my neck this morning. (laughs) But in all seriousness, the elders here at IBC, we don't take this job lightly. We carry the weight of rightly handling the word of God as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15. So let me pray for our morning. Heavenly Father, you are our God. You are our creator. Help us, Lord, to worship you this morning, to bring glory and honor to your name, to fall down at your feet, because we are in awe of you. Lord, Move out the distractions of this world, even now, in our minds and in our hearts, and help us to see clearly who you are. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to continue in a similar vein to some things we've been talking about the last couple weeks, especially last week when Bob looked at how fear gets in the way of our faith. Today we're going to ask the question, what or who is the object of our worship? I'd like to note that, we, we, that what we talk about this morning will probably fall painfully short of expressing the greatness of our triune God, who is the only being worthy of our worship. I also want to note that this morning might be a little less teaching than we're used to, uh, but there's a reason for that, so just stick with me. But when we think about God and, and how worthy he is of our worship, uh, we need to try We need to try, as finite beings with finite hearts and minds, we need to try to grasp the infinite. We should long to know our God more deeply, more intimately, as we grow in our faith. I know for me personally, as I've grown in my faith throughout the years, that the more I get to know God, the bigger he becomes, the more immense he becomes, the greater his love is for us. It has only made me more in awe over him over the years as I realize how vast his grace and mercy are, his love for his creation, his plans for this earth, and his plans for us, his people. How is fear connected to our worship? It's my belief that, we worship, that if we worshiped our sovereign God rightly, then we wouldn't fear, at least we wouldn't fear this world. Because in him there is nothing to fear. Isaiah 41.10 says it well. 
I'm going to borrow something from Justin, if you guys remember him, preached a few weeks ago. Who would like to stand up and read Isaiah 41.10 for us? You can read it from the screen if you'd like. Waya? Do it loud. Thank you, Waya. Fear not, for I am with you. As we jump in this morning, one of my goals is to raise a lot of questions and hopefully give very few answers. The reason for this is that as those who claim Christ as our Savior and therefore God as our Father, we must continually examine our hearts and our minds to see if we are somehow out of balance, especially when it comes to our worship. It's a difficult balance to keep as we're constantly waging war. War against ourselves, war against the world, and war against Satan, the great deceiver. It's my humble opinion that we think too little about God, and we think too lowly about Him. A quote from one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, is appropriate here. And I'd encourage you, if Tozer isn't one of your favorite authors, he should be. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, from his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Let me repeat that and add, for our church family here at IBC, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So really, church family, what do we think about God? Do we think about him enough? Do we think enough high enough thoughts about him. When we think on God, are we overwhelmed and brought to our knees? Are we slayed like Isaiah when he goes before the throne of God the Almighty? Who would like to read Isaiah 6, 1-5 for us? Anybody? Don't make me pick, because I will. <laughs> Tim, stand up. Each had six wings, with two covered his face, and with two covered his feet, and with two he flew. <laughs> and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the, of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people, or a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Amen. Thanks, Tim. Oh, woe are we, IBC, for we are a people of unclean hearts and unclean minds. Why is that? Why are our thoughts not filled with the wonders of our Almighty God? Why are we not brought low when we think about His glory and His holiness? Do we spend the time that we really should be spending to dwell on things like His character, His person, and His attributes? Do we truly believe what we profess? Do we believe God when He makes promises like He does in Revelation 1, 17 and 18? 
somebody read that for us? Oh, go for it. Thank you, Luana. This is Jesus talking. Jesus talking to John. Do we believe that God, that the God we came to worship together this morning as a family is this God? That He is Yahweh, the great I Am? Do we believe that He conquered sin and death and holds the keys to death and hell? Do we believe that God is truth? and that He is exactly who He says He is? Do we believe that God is love, and He is grace, and that what He did for us through Christ has changed us, that we are really His adopted children? Are we in awe and wonder before our Heavenly Father when we go to Him in prayer, or when we go to read the Scriptures? So what is the object of our worship if it is not Almighty God? And why do we struggle to truly worship Him if we are really His kids? I've racked my brain the past couple of weeks in preparation for this sermon, and I've wrestled with these many questions and so many more. I've cut. I've prayed and asked God to reveal what, in my own heart, prevents me from truly worshiping Him, from not living in fear of this world, but rather in fear of God Almighty. Do I believe His promises are true and that He is the great I Am? As a result of this searching and questioning, I've concluded three things. Number one, we are a busy and distracted people, especially here in America. We fill our time with amusement, things to do, people to see, news to listen to, TV to watch, radio, sports, and all sorts of other entertainment. By doing this, we don't allow time to really sit with God, to study His Word, to pray, and to listen, and to fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Number two, we worship many idols, lots and lots of little false gods. More on this one in a minute. And number three, we make God manageable. We try to put Him in a box that makes sense to us. We don't believe that He is the infinite, perfect, holy, just, and loving God that He says He is. More on this one to come as well. For the sake of time, I'm only going to really be able to focus on the second two points, as I think the first one kind of speaks for itself. We're busy people, and we fill our time with stuff. So what does it mean that we worship many idols, little false gods? The scriptures make it plain that we are to have no other gods before the one true God. We see this in Exodus 20, verse 3, in the Ten Commandments, where it says, You shall have no other gods before me. It's pretty plain and simple. We see it again in Exodus 6:14, where it says, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Again, pretty simple. We see this repeatedly in the Old Testament as the Israelites continued to worship false gods over and over and over again. Even Jesus reminds us in Matthew 22:37 and 38, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Asking this question made me think of Paul when he went before the Athenians in Acts 17, 16 to 34. It says in verse 16 that when Paul entered the city of Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The intellectuals of that city then asked Paul to stand before them in the Areopagus and explain to them his new teaching. When Paul enters the Areopagus, he notices that they have all these idols for the different gods that they worship. This is in Acts 17.23. Who'd like to read it? Maria, you were going to read it. Oh, go, Linda's got it. One of you. Go, Linda. Thank you. So what were these gods that they worshipped then? For sure, the goddess Athena, as she was the namesake of the city of Athens, as well as a host of other Greek gods and goddesses like Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, Eros, Poseidon, Hermes. It is believed that there were as many as 30,000 gods worshipped at the time of Paul. 30,000. They also worshipped gods of themes like shame, or virtue, or reason. Let's talk about what those idols are for us today. I brought a little visual aid that will hopefully help us. Sorry, hopefully you guys can see these up here. Hopefully when it's putting those out, sorry if they're too low. Maybe there's a little conviction that comes with them. Church family, I come before you today as I see that we worship many false gods. Here we have gods like the God of Holy Cow, it's 2 a.m. Why am I not in bed? also known as the God of Netflix, Hulu, streaming services. The God of how come I didn't get anything done today, also called YouTube, Candy Crush, or whatever time-sucking time app of choice you prefer. The God of I deserve a lazy Sunday. It's been a long week, so I'm just going to sit on the couch with a bowl of chips and a football game. The God of... I can say whatever I want because I'm always right. Everybody should know what I think. Also known as the God of Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. Just pick your social media. The God of I really need that newest who's a what's it more than my neighbor needs their electricity turned back on. Also known as the God of being wanty, not needy. And then there's a God of look at me, look at me, look at me. Does anybody know what the number one photo in our day and age is? Selfie. The selfie. We can't get away from ourselves. 
I could go on and on with these as there are so many things we can and do worship, like getting a new car or truck, eating at a fancy new restaurant, hanging out with the cool kids, impressing the boss at work, taking that dreamy Caribbean vacation we've always dreamed about, being so ripped and fit that all my clothes fit nice and tight, walking into, into work with my Starbucks quadruple shot, cold foam, coffee cherry, blah, blah, blah. You get the point. While these all seem innocent on the surface, I think we fail to realize how much of our thought life is spent thinking on things like this and not on God. How much of our fear and anxiety is because we focus on these little idols, these little gods. And then let's not even get started on the more destructive gods. Pornography, gambling, drugs, alcohol, greed, gluttony, and a host of other gods of addiction that derail our lives and cause us to think mainly and only about ourselves. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there are also some really good things in this life that we turn into idols as well. Things we think we can, that we have control over. Things or even people that we mistakenly believe belong to us. Things like our work, things like our ministry even here at church, things like our work in the community, things like our friends, our family that are sitting with us right now. Even our spouses and our kids can become idols. I know it's hard to swallow, but we do. We take these great gifts that God has given us, and we begin to worship them rather than Him. What stood out to me is that when I think of all these idols, there is really one little God at the center of them all, and that is the God of self. We have to admit, we are selfish people. We want to be loved. We want to be patted on the back and told, man, you're awesome. And what we haven't realized yet is that there's only one who has ever lived that can fill the me-sized hole in each of us. And that is Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. I pray that someday we will all figure this out with a little help from the loved ones that are sitting with us in these seats this morning, and a lot of help from the Holy Spirit, because we can't do it without Him. I pray that He will reveal the depth of our selfishness and the darkness of our hearts. Now on to the other point. So what does it mean that we make God manageable? Why is it that, even as Christians, we tend to want to put God in a box, making Him something we can manage or control? Why don't we allow God to be God, to be as infinite, omnipotent, and as holy as He really is? Is there something about Him that scares us? If we should fear anything, I think we already know the answer to that question. It should be God, not man, not any other created thing, because all created things come from God above. I'd like to refer back to something Pastor Jeff uh, said many times in uh, when he was preaching, <laughs> um, but I believe it fits well here. Why is it that if we don't know the truth, we will follow a lie? And why do so many of us follow or believe these lies? Lies about God, lies about church, lies about life, lies about death. 
Lies about what it means to be a Christian. Lies about blessing. Lies about suffering. Lies about Jesus. And even lies about ourselves. When we worship a manageable God, one that makes sense to us, we believe the lies and we lose faith because we don't think God is big enough to overcome our problems. We don't think he's big enough to overcome our pain or our suffering. When we worship a puny, man-made God, we live in fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety that cripples us at times. And all of this because we have failed to worship the one true creator God who is magnificent, sovereign over all things, and the only one worthy of all the awe and praise his creation can muster. I think we get a very real glimpse of what happens when we get out of balance in our hearts and fail to worship God rightly in Romans 1, 19 to 25. I know it's a little bit longer one, but can somebody read it for us? Thank you. Thank you, Lance. Here we see what the punishment is for choosing to worship things other than God, the creator. God gives us over to ourselves as the just punishment of our sin. To ourselves, you guys. That's how awful we are. I don't know about you guys, but that scares me. Because I know how corrupt my heart is how dirty and black it is. It comes back to the fact that we foolishly exchange what is plainly seen and known about God, and we turn it back to idol worship and self-worship. Instead of worshiping the sovereign God who created all things, including us, he created us. We worship things that resemble ourselves, things we can have control over, little gods that we can manage. It is sad that we try to put God in a box, like this box here, the one that also holds all of our little idols. We reduce his majesty, his infinity, his power, his holiness, and his character to something that we can hold in our hands, like a block of wood or a chunk of metal. Or maybe it's an image in our minds, one that we can manipulate and predict one that makes sense to us. Another quote from Tozer fits really well here. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. As we begin to wrap this up, I'd like to attempt to turn our hearts away from ourselves 
and to God the Father. And hopefully help, a, help set us on a path that will really cause us to think in new and profound ways about our Heavenly Father. While this deserves an entire sermon of its own, probably really a series, my hope is to help us focus on how we should be in awe of God and how this can really only happen when we examine our hearts for the imbalance of worship. When we hold each other accountable to worshiping the one true God together as a family, when we work to push out the distractions in our minds and in our hearts, when we ask our family to pray for us, to help us discover those little gods in our hearts that we justify being there. When we do all of this and we spend time pondering Him, Elohim, Yahweh, the Great I Am, then we might begin to think rightly about Him and His glory and hopefully be in awe of our great and awesome God. Sorry, but I gotta do one last quote from Tozer. Now I think you'll see why he's one of my favorites. It's a long one, so bear with me. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one upon another. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul, to obey him perfectly, and to worship him acceptably. I'm going to take us into what has become my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Job. I wish I had more time to dig deeper into this magnificent book and why it speaks to me every time that I read it. I'll sum it up by saying that I think it gives us such a great eternal perspective that ultimately it puts all of our temporal, all of our temporal problems, our pain and suffering on this earth, our fear and everything that we see wrong around us, and it puts it in its place. I know I won't do it justice, but I'm going to do a quick summary of Job's story so that we can end where we should, worshiping our loving and all-powerful God. If you haven't read the book of Job yet, I highly encourage you to do so. Start today, start tonight. I guarantee you, you won't be disappointed. The book of Job begins with showing us that Job is the most righteous man on earth in his time. He is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from, from evil, Job 1.8. He possesses much land, many flocks and herds, many servants. He has lots of kids. He's highly, highly regarded in his community, so he's of good repute. He's a truly blessed man. He makes daily sacrifices for himself and all of his children just in case any of them has sinned without knowing it. God's favor rests upon Job. Enter Satan. He goes before God and he challenges God. And he tells God that if he were to remove his favor from Job and set his hand against him, then Job would turn from God and curse him. We then learn that, that God gives Satan permission to set his hand against everything in Job's possession, and even on Job himself, though he must spare Job's life. Suffice it to say that with no time wasted, Job proceeds to have the second most terriblest, horriblest, no goodest, very baddest day that has ever been had on earth. The first being Jesus Christ, 
You should read it. It's an insane story. I should not fail to mention that after Job loses all he possesses and is struck with boils from head to toe that are so bad it makes him want to die, the scripture says in Job 1.22 that in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Enter Job's three closest, oldest, and wisest friends. They come to comfort and console Job in his misery, but they end up doing the complete opposite. They accuse Job of having some hidden wickedness, some secret sin, some form of unrighteousness, because all of this could have only happened because God is punishing Job. He's judging him. This is the God they know. This is the God they understood. This is how God works. Job repeatedly defends himself against his friends. There's nothing he's hiding. He believes himself to be a righteous man. And so Job justifies himself. Enter Elihu, a younger friend of Job's, who was patient as he listened in on the discourse between Job and the other three. As he listened and waited, he burned with anger. It reminds me of Paul when he goes into Athens. His spirit was provoked within him. Elihu burned with anger because in all of their babbling, they had failed to justify God or to worship him. They had missed the point. The point wasn't Job's suffering. The point wasn't to find out what Job had done wrong. The point was to extol God's justice, God's majesty, his awesome power and might, to bring God glory even in the midst of Job's pain and suffering heartache and loss. You guys, they had missed the point. They thought they knew God, but really they just focused on themselves. Enter God. Sorry guys, but this part gives me goosebumps. In Job 38, God shows up as a whirlwind a tornado of sorts. And he puts these men in their place. I'm going to close with scripture. My prayer is that this helps us see our place and that we worship and serve an infinite and perfect God, one that we do not deserve. I give you guys permission. If you need to change your posture during this time, please do. Kneel, sit, stand, do whatever the Lord would have you do. Feel free to worship God how you would like for the next few minutes. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know this much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the survey line? What supports its foundations, and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? 
and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness. For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further will you come. Here you proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced. Have you visited the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I have reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out a path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to the dew? Who is the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the water turns to ice as hard as rock and the surface of the water freezes. Can you direct the movement of the stars? Binding the cluster of the Pleiades or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use these to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clods? Can you stock prey for a lioness and satisfy the young lion's appetites as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when their young cry out to God and wander about in hunger? Do you know when the wild goats give birth? Have you watched as deer are born in the wild? Do you know how many months they carry their young? Are you aware of the time of their delivery? They crouch down to give birth to their young and deliver their offspring. Their young grow up in the open fields and leave home and never return. Who gives the wild donkey its freedom? Who untied its ropes? I have placed it in the wilderness. Its home is the wasteland. It hates the noise of the city and has no driver to shout at it. The mountains are its pasture land where it searches for every blade of grass. Will the wild ox consent to being tamed? Will it spend the night in your stall? Can you hitch a wild ox to a plow? Will it plow a field for you? Given its strength, can you trust it? Can you leave and trust the ox to do your work? Can you rely on it to bring home your grain and deliver it to your threshing floor? The ostrich flaps her wings grandly, but they, they are no match for the feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on top of the earth, letting them be warmed in the dust. She doesn't worry that a foot might crush them or a wild animal might destroy them. She is harsh toward her young, as if they were not her own. She doesn't care if they die. For God has deprived her of wisdom, 
He has given her no understanding. But whenever she jumps up to run, she passes the swiftest horse with, horse with its rider. Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Did you give it the ability to leap like a locust? Its majestic snorting is terrifying. It paws the earth and rejoices in its strength when it charges out to battle. It laughs at fear and it is unafraid. It does not run from the sword. The arrows rattle against it and the spear and javelin flash. It paws the ground fiercely and rushes forward into battle when the ram's horn blows. It snorts at the sound of the horn. It senses the battle in the distance. It quivers at the captain's commands and the noise of the battle. Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spreads its wing toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagles rise to the heights to make its nest? It lives on the cliffs, making its home on a distant, rocky crag. From there it hunts its prey, keeping watch with piercing eyes. Its young gulp down blood, where there's a carcass, there you'll find it. And then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Amen.